Our reading tonight will be Acts 21, and we'll continue on to Acts 22, verse 29. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board, and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nasson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the date of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. 
They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. Since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, Away with him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priests and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring those people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what you are waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, 
These men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. This is God's word. Well, good evening. My name is Matt, uh, one of the ministers here. And that is, uh, that's called a cliffhanger, isn't it? Uh, come back next week. Paul is stretched out, ready to be flogged. And we'll join that story again next week. Uh, so there's a cliffhanger. I imagine the, the, uh, the music would roll da, 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 at that moment uh, if, uh, if the sitcoms had control of that. Let's pray as we look at God's word. Our Father, thank you that you speak to us, that you speak relevantly into our world today. And so please, as we've heard you speak to us in your word, help us to understand and apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, pub quiz question for you to start with. Uh, what do the following have in uh, common? Uh, Batman Begins, Wolverine, uh, The Hobbit, The Amazing Spider-Man. What do those have in common, I wonder? The cynical will say these are Hollywood blockbusters that come in to make a package for Hollywood at this time of year. That's the cynical among years. My pub, my quiz. So here's the answer I was looking for. The answer I was looking for is they're all about origins. Have you noticed the number of films at the moment that are to do with origins, going back to the beginning of things? How is it that uh, Spider-Man or his parents first got scared of spiders or whatever? How is it that Wolverine became, you know, girls, these are the questions that fill the minds of guys. How did Wolverine become Wolverine? What's going on there? Origins. We're fascinated by origins. And when it comes to the Christian faith, of course, it's a good question as well. Origins. What are the origins of the Christian faith? Is it true, for example, that it was all you know, changed and made up in the 4th century? Or can we get back to the origins of it and find out how it all started? Now, Acts is a book about origins. Chapter 1, verse 1, Luke, who's writing it, tells us about the previous book he'd written and all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he picks it up uh, in his second book, what Jesus continued to do by his spirit through the or the acts of the apostles. That's where the name of the book comes from. All that Jesus continued 
to do. And it seems that he's writing to a guy called Theophilus. He's mentioned in the first verse, possibly a middle-class Roman guy who's interested in really the credibility of the gospel, of the Christian faith. Why should he look into it further? Why should he become a Christian? Why should he support it? So it's about the credibility of the Christian faith. And there are three strands that follow it through. So we're starting a new series for the next few weeks. Three strands that would just help us as we look at that. The first is he explains the content of the gospel. So there are a number of sermons. Uh, We see theological discussion. Uh, The gospel comes across opposition. They have to work out some of the finer details of Jesus' teaching. Uh, We see the lives of the followers of Jesus. So there's the content of the gospel. Then we see the progress of the gospel. How it, how it went out from Jerusalem in those early years. And the point really with that is that none of the obstacles that come up against the gospel can stop it. It just makes progress. So, uh, disputes, grumbling, the death of leaders, persecution, riots, a storm towards the end, right at the end, a snake bite, all of these sorts of things which might just stop the progress of the gospel, none of them can do it. Because the gospel is unstoppable. It's power. It spreads. So there's the the content, there's the progress, and the extent of it. So turn back to chapter 1, verse 8. Some of us will have, uh, might be familiar with this. Chapter 1, verse 8. These are the words of Jesus to his followers, page 1092. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So it will go out to the ends of the earth. The extent of it is all of the world. The people is for Jew and Gentile. So just some strands that will follow in the next few weeks. If you want a summary, it would be something like this, that the good news of the risen Christ, is the content, is unstoppable. That's the progress as it goes to the ends of the earth. That's the extent. The good news of the risen Christ is unstoppable as it goes to the ends of the earth. And so in the next four weeks, we're looking at these lesser known, I think they really are lesser known chapters at the end of Acts. Acts 21 to 28. And they they deal with the end of Paul's, what's called his third missionary journey. We've got a map that might just uh, come up on the on the screen there the end of his third missionary journey. He's been all the way out in Corinth. He's going to come all the way down to Jerusalem. We join him up at Coz on the way down. Some of you might go on your holiday there, I don't know, later on in the summer. He's coming back to Jerusalem. That's the end of his journey. And then he's going to go off from there to Rome. So that's where we are. We're just about to come back to Jerusalem today. The next few weeks we see how he ended up at the end of the book in Rome. So this week we see the gospel in Jerusalem. Next week, we see it before world leaders. Uh, Then we see the gospel in a storm. And in the last week, we see, I don't know if you knew that, the last word of the book of Acts is the word unhindered. Unhindered. That's the last word of the book of Acts. So we'll see how even though he's in Rome at the end, the gospel is still unhindered. So tonight, just uh, briefly then, the gospel made progress through three things, suffering, unity, and against religion. It made progress through suffering. So if you've lost your place, turn back to Acts chapter 21, and let's just see something of this. So we're on page 1117. 
And Paul has said in chapter 19 that he's determined to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And the last sight we had of him, if you were here when we looked at Acts uh, before, was in chapter 20. He's on the beach in Miletus. And he says in chapter 20, in verse uh, 22, that compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen there. So he jumps on the boat and he sets off and he arrives just north of Jerusalem. He's heading down the coast and verse 4, there are some people who plead with him not to go to Jerusalem through the Spirit. What's going on there? There he is, he's absolutely determined, I'm going to Jerusalem. And he comes across some people who say, Paul, on no accounts, seems you should be going to Jerusalem. They urge him through the Spirit. It's slightly hard to work out uh, what's going on from these verses. If you look on at verse uh, 10 and 11, it seems that uh, Luke's giving us a shorthand that the Spirit is predicting the suffering of Paul in Jerusalem. It's not necessarily a prohibition. It's a condensed form in verse 4, amplified in verses 10 to 11. And clearly Luke thinks it's the right thing for Paul to be going on to Jerusalem. It's the right thing for him to be doing. And yet it's clear that Paul knows that the progress of the gospel in his life will be through suffering. This guy Agabus comes up to him and says, this is what's going to happen to you. You will suffer when you go to Jerusalem. And Paul, verse 13, is ready to die. Do you see, he says, verse 13, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's, you see that, go through the rest of the chapter. People are trying to kill Paul for his preaching. Uh, He is bound in verse 33, same word, just as Agabus promised, he was bound when he got to Jerusalem. Verse 35, he has to be carried by the Roman guards because the mob are just about to descend on him and tear him limb from limb. And we saw him right at the end, about to be flogged, stretched out at the end. Paul was absolutely clear. He knowingly walks into suffering because he knew that the progress of the gospel is often through suffering. But you see, he's showing Theophilus, as Luke writes this, he's showing Theophilus, this is exactly how the gospel started. It made progress through suffering. So imagine for a minute you are Theophilus. Uh, maybe you live in, in Rome, but you're reading the, the newspapers and you're hearing about this, this bunch of Christians. And everywhere... Christians seem to pop up at the moment. There seem to be riots going on. And maybe the question in your mind is, well, look, are these guys troublemakers? I mean, are they fundamentalists, you know, just standing on every right that they have? Are they rioters? It's a very modern question, isn't it? Christians today, are they, are they fundamentalists standing on their rights? Are they, are they the troublemakers of society? Be a, be a question in the papers. But you see, if you look through the chapter, Paul makes it clear that Before he was a Christian, he was a persecutor. When he became a Christian, he became the persecuted. That's what happened uh, in the early days of the church. Do you see what uh, Luke's showing Theophilus then? The gospel made progress in the early days. It was through suffering. Let's step back. Of course, that's no surprise. That's no surprise for Christians. 
that it should grow, that it should make progress through suffering. Because the content of the gospel is of a suffering Christ. So Luke, as he, as he tells the story of Paul, just brings out some of the echoes in Paul's story of what happened to Jesus. So do you remember when Luke wrote his first account of Jesus' life, one of the big turning points is when Jesus sets his face and goes to Jerusalem. And he knows as he goes into Jerusalem, there'll be suffering. He knows that he'll be killed, and yet he goes. And Luke's saying, look, in the same way that that happened to Jesus, happened to Paul and all of his followers. So he mirrors some of the things. Paul is rejected. Paul goes through trials. Paul is slapped in the face just as Jesus was. There are plots against Paul as there were against Jesus. It's no surprise that the gospel makes progress through suffering. And you know, as, as Luke puts that before Theophilus and as God puts that before us, we're, we're kind of meant to compare our lives with the origins of the gospel. And it asks us the question, is that how we think that the gospel will make progress in our day? Through suffering in our lives. Do we see that? That's how it all started. That's how it continued in Paul. That's God's word to us today. That the gospel makes progress. It'll make progress in this city, in this world, in just the same way. Because that's the content of the gospel. Through a suffering Christ. So can I ask you, it's easy, isn't it, to think that I don't know, that the gospel would really get some traction in the city, in this country, if a number of celebrities became Christians, easy to, to think that. Or if, we, if our apologetic answers were you know, super strong and watertight and, and persuasive, then you don't want to throw that out. Of course, Paul argues clearly, Acts 17, he's doing that. But you see, as well as that, it's through the suffering of the people that the gospel makes progress. And so it may be that in our day, it will make progress in our cities as, I don't know, some of us are taken through the law courts and into prison as Paul was. Or as Matt mentioned earlier, think of the Christians in Garissa, in Kenya today, 16 killed in a church service. How will the gospel make progress in Kenya? Well, very often it will be through the suffering of God's people. And it's the same in our lives today. So let me just put it this way. Let me ask you, what would Agabus give to you? As Agabus the prophet, he turns up and he, and he gets the belt. This wasn't my belt, I brought it for someone else. I thought I wouldn't risk my own. That's the stuff of, that is the stuff of preacher's nightmares. But he gets the belt, he gets the belt and he puts it round and he says, this is what's going to happen to you. Gives him the belt. This is what's going to happen to you. Will you take it? And Paul says, I'll take it. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I'll walk into Jerusalem. I'm ready not just to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might be honoured. What would Agabus give you? What would he give you? I don't know what it would be for you. I mean, it might be a P45. Would he give you a P45? And say, look, if you stand up for Christian ethics in your job, it may cost you your job. Here, have a P45 for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you take it? I don't know what it would be for you. It might be uh, abuse on Facebook because you're known there as a, as a Christian. That's what Agabus would give you. Here you go. Abuse on Facebook. Social death for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe he'd walk up to you and say, um, 
look, because we've thought about finance this evening, because of the costly giving of, of the decisions that you make, it may be that you won't ever afford the dream house that you wanted. You have to settle for a, a house in a different zone of London. I'm not going to name a suburb. That's going to be controversial, is it? But in that suburb or this suburb, and it's not the one that you'd have wanted because you've committed some of your giving to gospel work, and that means you can't have as much as you would have liked for that. And Agabus would say to you, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says for you. Would you take it? Paul says the gospel goes out through suffering. Paul was prepared to do that for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it is the right thing to know that there's suffering and to walk straight into it. And that's what Paul did. So there's the first thing. The gospel made progress through suffering. It made progress in unity. In unity. So verse 17. This is the meeting. Do you see verse 17? They arrive at Jerusalem finally. And it's the meeting of the two big leaders of the day. There's James, the leader of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And there's Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. And it's been many years since they met. Uh, back in chapter 15, they had a council, but they've gone their separate ways. And now they come back together again, and there's news to be shared. And so Paul, Paul goes first, verse 18. And there's been growth among the Gentiles, and they praise God. Uh, and we know that he's come to Jerusalem largely to give a gift to the church. He's prayed, he's asked the church in Rome to pray. Please would the gift be accepted so that there'd be unity between the churches. And it's accepted. And they praise God for Jew and Gentile solidarity. And then James, Paul's gone first. James stands up next and he speaks and he says, verse, uh, verse 20, there's been, there's been tr- tremendous growth in Jerusalem. Many people have become Christians, Paul. It's absolutely fantastic, but <laughs> there's a problem. It's slightly awkward, Paul. There's a bit of an issue. There's the rumor going round that when a Jew becomes a Christian, you try and turn them from Jewish culture. And that might affect people here. That seems to be the issue that's going on. Just the rumor going round. That's not true that Paul's turning people from Jewish culture. But the rumor's going round. And it's worth saying that James hasn't moved from chapter 15 where they made the decisions. He uses the same language in verse 25 of that council. Nor is he saying that Paul's become a heretic turned away from the faith. He uses the word brother of Paul. But what he is suggesting in these verses, that verse 22, what shall we do, is that Paul should join in some vow that some guys took in the Old Testament, a Nazarite vow seems to be uh, that, a vow that they took just to sort of put themselves aside. It was a Jewish cultural thing that they'd set themselves aside for a particular time to do it. And he says to Paul, look, Paul, do you think for the sake of unity you could just just join in with this right? Uh, pay the costs of this so that it would happen. Do you think you could do that? Now what will Paul do? What should Paul do? He's being asked to do that. Do you remember elsewhere Paul writes a letter? And Paul's absolutely clear that if someone is saying that you get to heaven through doing things, for example, being circumcised, in the book of Galatia. Paul is right against that, and he'll come out of writer's one of the strongest letters he wrote against that. It's absolutely clear. If, you're, if that's what you're saying about this, then I'm dead against it. If you're using circumcision or something like that, I'm dead against it. But if someone was struggling with a cultural issue, then he's prepared to adapt for the sake of unity, because he knows how important 
that is. And so the next day, verse 26, the next day, he goes and he joins in with this because he sees that unity matters for the gospel to go forward. Not unity without truth. Don't just have unity just on the basis of anything. Unity is on truth. That's what Jesus prayed for his disciples. But where there's unity in that, there's flexibility on cultural things. So just imagine the situation, just to try and ground it a bit. Imagine a guy called Zach, and he becomes a Christian in his 40s. And he's come out of a Jewish background, and he has always held and always been taught that eating, eating bacon is a sin. It's an unclean thing to eat. And he's become a Christian. He's never had a bacon sandwich in his life. And then he becomes a Christian. And he's got this culture that he's grown up with for 40 years. And someone turns up who's a Christian and they, they know the freedom that the Bible gives uh, on that. And so they start eating a bacon sandwich in front of him. How's he going to feel about that? He might, he might just be thrown for a bit in his new beliefs. Because here is a cultural thing that he's held for such a long time. And suddenly, actually he's slightly thrown by that. It might set him back a bit in the faith. Now, what's Paul doing? He's, he's stepping across that. He's saying, look, this seems to be a cultural baggage that some are holding on to. And for the sake of unity, I'm going to help. What would that look like today? Imagine another person, Kim. Kim becomes a Christian out of a, a South Korean background and has grown up thinking uh, in, in their teaching that any alcohol, to have any alcohol at all would be a sin. And they turn up at a church like, uh, like Christ Church Mayfair and would be quite happy to go to the pub. We might have thought that through from a Bible perspective, be persuaded even that alcohol in moderation is a good gift from God. But you see, in conversation or in our cultural interactions, actually there may be a place for saying, look, for the sake of unity, I'm just going to hold back on that. Because I see that unity, and, and this might just set them back a bit in their new Christian faith. Actually, for that sake, I think the gospel calls me just to restrain my freedom in that area for the sake of unity. So I think that's something of what's going on here. But you see the point. Paul sees that unity is key for the gospel going forward. It asks us the question, where do we need to do that with our friends? Where Are there new believers? Are there friends where for the sake of unity, we just need to restrain our freedom for their sake? Here's the last thing. The gospel goes forward against religion. It goes forward against religion. So chapter 21 to 23 happen in Jerusalem. That's what this section is about. That's why we read the, the whole lot. It's about Jerusalem. Next week, it's about Roman leaders. But you see verse 27, chapter 21, verse 27. It starts with Paul at the temple. And it ends with Paul on the gallows. Now, how did that happen? What happened at that point? Well, we're told the answer, verse 28. Verse 28 of chapter 21. People are offended because Paul has broken a, a law, religious law, or so they think. And so they are willing to kill Paul, there's a religious uproar, there's a riot, they are set on killing him. He has to be carried away out of it by the Roman soldiers. Now again, think your, your way into the mind of a Theophilus, looking in on the, 
on the gospel. So maybe you've been persuaded, okay, I, I get, I get this. It's not, it's not that Christians were rioters, that they're troublemakers. Actually, it seems like they're the persecuted often. But maybe he thinks, okay, I take that point, but why do, why do Christians sometimes just, um, just say things that they know will upset others? Do you ever think that if you're looking in on the Christian faith? Why do, why do Christians sometimes say things that they, that bring upset from others. I mean, verse 39, classic example. There is Paul, he's being dragged away and he says, I'm a Jew, and can I speak to the people? I mean, and at the end of it, he's in trouble. I mean, typical, isn't that just typical of Christians? He could have just gone quietly and yet he speaks and he ends up in trouble. It's, well, it's his own fault, isn't it? Would you see a couple of things, just as you, if you look through the speech that, that Luke's showing that's not the case. The first is he's very respectful. Verse 40, he speaks to them in Aramaic. He's giving a defense. And this is the second time that he's explained how he became a Christian. And in this one, he especially is at pains to point out that he's from he's very much from a Jewish background. He's one of their people. And so he stresses that. But you see the turning point. The turning point is verse 21. He lays out how he became a Christian. But the turning point is verse 21. The Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. That is the turning point. When he says, Jesus Christ, your Messiah, who you killed, is alive again. And he has said that the gospel is not just for a few, but it's for the many. He said that I should go to the Gentiles. And so it was religion that rejected the gospel. And that's often, it's often the way, isn't it? I don't know if you, if you think of those scenes. Have you ever seen a little child and uh, they're playing with all of their toys and you go up to the little child and you say, um, Johnny, are you, uh, are you playing with Thomas the Tank Engine? And they say, no, no, that's, that's perfectly fine. They say in a very adult sort of civil way. And uh, they say, not playing with Thomas the Tank Engine. That's fine. Do you mind if I just uh, take Thomas the Tank Engine over so that Millie can play with Thomas? And suddenly over here, no, 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 I want Thomas the Tank Engine. They weren't playing with the toy. They weren't interested in Thomas the Tank Engine until it was handed over to others. And suddenly they want control back again. Now here, look, here. Not, not concerned about them, this Messiah until this Messiah, the one who they killed and who's now alive again, is being taken out to the Gentiles so that anyone, anyone can come in through this Messiah and have the benefits of what he brings. So they can have, verse 16, the promise, verse 16, of having your sins washed away. That's a promise for the Gentile, Paul's saying, for anyone, not just the Jews. Or at the end, later on, Paul will say, chapter 23, verse uh, 6, we didn't read this bit, but it's because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul is saying forgiveness of sins and hope in the resurrection is for anyone. It's not just for special bunch. It's not just for the religious. Jesus has been raised. It's for anyone. So there's the third 
observation that, that Luke makes from these chapters as he seeks to lay out before Theophilus and us the origins of the gospel. How did it, how did it ever start? How did it ever make progress? Well, it made progress through the suffering of God's people, of the leaders. That's how it started. It started with a suffering Messiah, and it continued through that. It, uh, it continued through the unity of God's people. It was rejected by the religious, and it went out from there. Can I just show you one thing, though, just as we, as we close? And it's the story that stands behind all of this. So there's suffering, there's unity, there's religion. These were responsible choices that people made. Agabus comes up to Paul, and Paul makes a real choice to go towards suffering, and that's how the gospel went out. But behind all of that and above all of that, Acts tells us again and again that it was the sovereignty of God that took the gospel out to the ends of the earth, to places like Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, the ends of the earth. You know, we were the ends of the earth in those days. Great Britain, in many ways we still are. The ends of the earth. We are at the ends of the earth. How did it get there? Well, it came through the sovereignty of God. I mean, things like chapter 21, verse 31. The news just happened to reach the commander, and so the commander comes down to see what's going on, and Paul is spared. But the most striking one, and this just blew me away as I thought about it, is chapter 22, verse 25. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary moment. There is Paul, and he's stretched out, and he's about to be flogged. And he says, excuse me. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Of course he knows the answer, it's not. In Roman law, you have to have a trial for that to happen. And so the conversation goes on. Now, the point is, how did Paul get his Roman citizenship? There were two ways you could get it. One, you were born in Rome. Paul says he wasn't born in Rome, he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Two, you have it conferred on you. It's a gift to you. You're made a citizen of Rome. Paul says he was born a citizen. That means his father was made a Roman citizen or his grandfather was made a Roman citizen. But hang on, they were from a Jewish family. They were very Jewish. Well, how did, how did it ever get conferred on them? We don't know how it got conferred on them. Possibly, we know they were tent makers. Possibly when Mark Antony moves his part of the empire into there, this is what people think, when he moves it into the area there, there are some faithful tent makers who do a really good job for the Roman Empire and they confer Roman citizenship on Paul's grandfather. It's the best guess that people can come up with. Which we don't need to know that. The point is, it happened years before this moment. Years before this moment, the Paul family were made citizens of Rome. And at this moment, as he stood out and stretched out, God has been at work 40 or 50 years before for this moment. And this moment is the moment when Paul, we see it next week, goes to Rome free of charge as a Roman prisoner. He takes the gospel to Rome free of charge at Caesar's expense on a boat to take the gospel to Rome. Do you see, God is sovereign. God is sovereignly working out his purposes to get the gospel to the ends of the earth through the suffering of his people, through their unity against religion but through his sovereign purposes and outworking. And doesn't that encourage you in the moment of life in which you find yourself as well if you're a Christian? 
that God is working out his purposes through his people today. Maybe things in your past that you just thought were part of your family history, the fact that you've always been musicians in your family, and now you can sing to God's glory and have opportunities for the gospel in London. Or the fact that you took German GCSE just because you really liked the teacher in that day, and now, I don't know, you find yourself able to take the gospel out to town in Munich, as a friend of mine is able to do, because he made a choice 20 years ago, and God was sovereignly working his purposes out to the ends of the earth. So you see, that's, that's what Luke says as he lays this out. It was through the suffering, the unity against religion, that the gospel made progress. But it was ultimately because God is sovereign. And it's because of that that the good news of the risen Christ is unstoppable as it goes to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what Agabus would say to us. We know in Paul's life on this occasion he was spared, but on other occasions he wasn't. And so we don't know what suffering lies ahead but we do know that you are our sovereign, heavenly Father, that you work all things out for your purposes. And so we look to you and we give you thanks that your gospel is unstoppable. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.